You know, growing up, um, pretty much every kid has to learn how to stand up to bullies, right? This is, a, this is a thing. My moment came with Jimmy Dawkins in elementary school. Um, you know, a lot of kids, I think, got beat up at home with, uh, without getting reported, and I'm suspecting that was the case for Jimmy Hawkins at his home. Anyway, he, he, he was a bully. He was like a fire plug. He was tough. He could beat up anyone he challenged. Somehow I gained his attention and he started taunting me. So I would keep my eyes peeled out for him. I crossed in the street to avoid him. This was back when people went to school and they actually walked to school. It might be a mile or whatever. Didn't have parents, you know, hovering over them all the time. And I would, you know, I'd take different routes home sometimes to avoid Jimmy. One summer day at Trojan Field in northwest Detroit near my home, I was playing with my buddy Jimmy Hahn. Every other boy was named Jimmy back in those days. And Jimmy Dawkins came by and took Jimmy Hahn's baseball mitt and was taunting us with it and something happened I just blew a cork I, w I was done with all this frustration and this fear of Jimmy Dawkins and all that fear just went I started screaming at him I tackled him and then I lay, I lay there as he had me in a headlock and he, he smacked me around pretty good but when it was over the baseball mitt was laying on the ground Jimmy Dawkins was gone and that was the end of bullying for me by Jimmy. I didn't feel humiliated for getting beat up. That was a given. I felt good about standing up to him. The first thing I really admired when I read the Gospel of Matthew, which I wasn't 19 until I did that, first thing I admired about the Jesus of the Gospels, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I was reading Matthew, was how he stood up to bullies. And there's a ruler named Herod Antipas, who is the chief example of a bully in Jesus' life. So Herod Antipas was the ruler of Galilee. Galilee was the northern region of Israel. Jesus grew up in Nazareth, a town in Galilee. Uh, the Roman uh, procurator, a Roman ruler named Pilate, was the ruler in the south of Israel, where the capital city, Jerusalem, was. So Herod Antipas ruling in the north, uh, uh, Pontius Pilate in the south, and Herod also had a palace in uh, Jerusalem where he came for the high holy days, even though he wasn't in charge in that region of Israel. And Herod, the, the Herod line in general, they were very, they were complicated. You know, everything's complicated when you're an insider. So Herod was ethnically Arab. He was religiously Jewish. He was culturally Greek. And he was politically Roman. So he was a kind of king. He served at the pleasure of Rome, but he was regarded as Jewish by the Jews. He was called the king of the Jews. And his father had built the temple in Jerusalem. So he was like, like we are. He was complicated. And what made Herod tick, as you read about him in the Gospels, it is what make, makes most bullies tick, which is fear. Herod Antipas lived in a world of fear. His brain must have just been pickled in fear. I mean, you think about it, his father was Herod the Great. Herod the Great was a ruler who killed at least one of his wives, he had several, and two of his sons. 
I think that qualifies as an abusive home environment that Herod Antipas would have grown up in. The first story involving Herod Antipas is when he had John the Baptist killed. The longest telling is in Mark chapter 6, and there's a, a similar telling in Matthew's gospel. Uh, Herod's probably drunk at one of his parties at the time, and he's pleased by his daughters dancing at this banquet with the many guests. And with great bravado, he says to the daughter, ask whatever you will up to half my kingdom and I will give it to you. It's like, you know, I'm rich, I'm wealthy, I can afford to give you up to half. The daughter confers with her mother named Herodias who says, tell him you want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. John the Baptist was being imprisoned by Herod in his palace. The girl goes to Herod and says, I want the head of John the Baptist on the platter. Uh, unwilling to lose face in front of his guests, Herod reluctantly issues the order and John the Baptist is beheaded and, you know, it all happened at the party. Now, in this lengthy account of how John the Baptist, who's a key figure in the gospel, he's the predecessor of Jesus, he was a cousin of Jesus, he started a renewal movement in, in uh, Israel that Jesus kind of like took to the next level. John the Baptist is killed in this account, but there's nothing about the fear that John the Baptist experienced in prison. The, the account is all about the fear that drove Herod. Like there's a triple fear affecting Herod in the text. First, he admired John, John um, Herod did, but he also feared John. Like as a righteous man, he feared John. And then he obviously feared his guests because he didn't want to behead John, but he'd made this rash vow and, you know, it, it was called. And he, for fear of the guests, he didn't want to, you know, be look, viewed as weak by going back on his rash vow. And it also says, it's either in uh, Mark, it might be in Matthew, that this led Herod to fear the miracle worker, Jesus, who Herod at first thought that Jesus must have been John the Baptist raised from the dead. So like he was just living in a world of fear. I, I, uh, shortly after my uh, first wife died, I, I tried to adopt a dog from the Humane Society. So it was unsuccessful. It was a German Shepherd, and it was fine for the first week, but then as all the family members left, it started going after anyone who visited me, who came into the house, and I oh, pastor, I have people coming over. I had to put the dog on a leash when guests would come over, because they would like charge and bark, and German Shepherd, and so... Literally, I hired a dog psychologist um, to, yeah, thank you, um, a dog psychologist who had a PhD in dog psychology, one of the few in the country, and she came up did this whole assessment. I like this dog. I wanted to make it work. And the, she said the dog had fear-based aggression. And the thing about fear-based aggression is the normal means of like, you know, usually if your dog's going after something, you yell at the dog, you bark at the dog, you pull on the dog's leash, and you know, like, you get the dog under, you're the, you're the alpha of the dogs, you know, whatever. That makes it worse if you have fear-based aggression. So you have to do this elaborate thing, conditioning to get dogs out of, I couldn't, I couldn't pull it off and had to, had to take it back to the Humane Society and I, I found a, a happy home on a farm without, without visitors or without visitors after, after the dog was around. <laughs> uh, fear-based, Herod Antipas had fear-based aggression and it's like the common, um, it's the common MO for, for bullies. 
So these bullies, they, they make us afraid of them, not just by their aggression, but because their own fear is contagious. And we tend to mirror fear when we see it in others. And so there's like a double thing going on with bullies and fear. Like most bullies, Herod um, projected his fear through other people. So, you know, we all know that groups tend to organize emotionally around their most anxious members. So often bullies are the most anxious, fearful members of a group. So people tend to emotionally organize around them, like not want to cross them. Um, the people um, around the bully warn other people not to cross the bully. You know, when I was telling my... Uh, evangelical pastor colleagues and talking about like at a more like a national within my denomination level that I couldn't enforce the party line on LGBT no one not a single one I just say not a single man warned me directly if you do this I will oppose you but they all warned me indirectly they all said, oh, this is not going to go well for you, Ken. It was kind of like, like other people will treat you badly if you do this. They, they, they knew the bully was the system, evangelicalism. And as members of that system, they were channeling the fear of the system. So bullies often project their fear to others through others through this dynamic. Fear is a contagion and bullies count on other people to spread fear of them. So political bullies rise to power on the coattails of fear and they often make, and this is another trait of Herod, an unholy alliance with religious powers. So Herod had opponents among the leaders of Israel. Actually, the Pharisees on the whole were like the earliest opponents of the line of Herod and continued to oppose him in different uh, ways. But Herod was smart. He knew that he couldn't rule without religious, the support of religious leaders, so he curried the favor of religious elites, which... Elites are especially vulnerable to when they're in, not in a position of power like the, the uh, leaders in Israel were under Roman occupation. So he would offer them favor in exchange for their support. And after all, Herod the Great, his father, had rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. This was like a big favor to the Jewish people. So his main religious support came from leaders who were connected to the temple. A different group than the Pharisees, actually. And the New Testament has a term for the religious supporters of Herod. They were called Herodians. And they probably crossed a number of the different like sectarian or party lines of, uh, of Israel at the time, the Herodians. So, I mean, this is just Hitler game power by sweet-talking the German Christian uh, leadership. Um, the leadership was vulnerable to this because the founder of like the German evangelical church was Martin Luther and he was, he was a, a brazen anti-Semite and this had never been renounced by the church up to that time. Um, Vladimir Putin 
you know, rose to power by sweet-talking the Russian Orthodox leadership. And you can appreciate it. The Russian Orthodox were persecuted by the communists in the Soviet Union, and then Putin comes to power. The Soviet Union is disbanded, and it's like the Orthodox can finally get their breathing room. And so Putin was wise, and so he, like, played up his Russian Orthodox mother. And then, you know, the Orthodox had this, this thing where on Epiphany, the 12th day of Christmas, the three wise men, Orthodox, would go out and be baptized, like re-baptized in, in water by immersion. And uh, Putin in 2018 did this. He, you know, he likes to show off his amazing, you know, you know, bare-chestedness. And so he picked the coldest, like the coldest possible lake. It was like right near freezing. And he had the religious leaders and he had the state TV and the hand-picked crowd. And he whips off his, you know, his shirt and he goes into the frigid waters and he crosses himself. And, you know, he's, he's, he, he couldn't function without the support of religious elites. When Nixon was hacking the DNC, he was kissing up to Billy Graham when Nixon, the Nixon tapes were released, Graham had to issue a public apology because he was yucking it up with Nixon when Nixon was just putting out his anti-Semitic uh, you know, bile onto the tape. And Billy Graham, to curry favor with this powerful man, was laughing along with Nixon. And to his credit, uh, uh, Graham at least was ashamed and apologized many years later when the tapes came out. So... This is, this is a, a pattern, isn't it? Um, Jesus. So, think about it. Jesus lived his entire life under the threat of either Herod the Great or his successor, Herod Antipas. And, you know, you could feel the weight of a leader in a place like Israel. It wasn't that big. The leader wasn't that remote. And, and it made a difference who the leader was. But what can we learn from Jesus about handling bullies? Now, three things. First, don't mirror the fear that emanates directly from the bully or indirectly through other people. This is a great, and, and this, is the, this is the text that, that I've really, um, it's in Luke and Matthew. I think I'll read it to you from Luke's gospel, but, but I can remember reading this for the first time uh, when I read the gospel of Matthew and thinking, oh man, I like this about Jesus. He's like, oh, I, I still really like this a great deal. Luke um, chapter 13, Jesus has been um, ministering in Galilee, which is under the rule of Herod. He's been healing, and he's really in ascendancy. He's, just, he's like a charismatic leader that's really making waves and doing great good. It says, at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Jesus said to them, go tell that fox for me. Listen, I'm casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day, I must be on my way because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. See, like he totally maintains his dignity. Jesus was tending to the common needs of the common people on the margins of Jewish life. 
Some of the Pharisees in Galilee would have been tuned in to Herod, and they would have done that out of concern for their people, for, for all the best reasons. To preserve Israel from Herod's violent impulses, they needed to kind of, they needed people of power around him to contain him. And you would be able to influence him by kind of cooperating with him where you could, maybe praising him where you could, in the, in the hopes that he would then listen to you and, and that would help your people. So it's completely understandable what they were doing. You know, today we see the same thing, good people trying to limit the damage of a bad leader by the surrounding the leader. And Do you resign or not? Well, it's a toss-up. It's a judgment call. Of all the leadership groups in Israel, the Pharisees were probably the most prominent historically resistors in the, in, uh, to the line of Herod. So we have to really understand them sympathetically here, not just kind of do the usual Christian cartoon picture of Pharisees as like bad guys. Uh, Jesus was probably closer to the Pharisees in theology than to any other group in, uh, in Israel at the time. But these Pharisees were in this probably balancing act with Herod. They were in contact with Herod because they knew that Herod was out to get him. Jesus sent a message thinking they could get it back to Herod. Um, but they were just doing so in a more friend, hoping to, you know, nudge Herod in a more friendly to Israel uh, set of policies. But they were channeling, they were mirroring Herod's fear and his threats, albeit for the good of Jesus. They were mirroring Herod's fear and the threats to Jesus. And, and the brain of Jesus would have wanted to mirror it right back, but he would have none of it. He overrode that impulse. He said, go tell that fox for me. Fox was an insult. You know, I mean, uh, everyone in, in that rural portion of Israel, they either uh, kept chickens or they were, uh, raised grapevines. And foxes were sneaky animals that went after your chickens and they went after your grapevines. People did not like foxes. He was insulting Herod. Go tell that fox for me. And this was his message to the Pharisees was, I am not moved by the fear of Herod. And by giving them the message to send back to Herod, he was sort of inviting them to join him in not mirroring Herod's fear either. And they couldn't deliver that message without, you know, standing up to Herod. So we can imagine it probably wasn't delivered. Now, having said that, Jesus did move out of the reach of Herod. You know, he just did it slowly. It took him three days instead of right away. He was maintaining his dignity, but he was also being smart about the threat of Herod. So the first thing is don't mirror the fear of the bully as much as possible. The second thing that Jesus teaches us is don't mirror the tactics of the bully in order to resist the bully. So this is in Luke chapter 23. This is, um, we're in the passion account now, meaning the period that talks about all the events that immediately preceded the death of Jesus. Jesus has been arrested. He was interrogated by uh, Pontius Pilate who was, had the real authority over him as the Roman in charge of Judea. This was happening in Jerusalem. So, um, Jesus couldn't be uh, crucified without the permission of Herod, of uh, Pilate that is, but Herod was visiting 
in Jerusalem for the, the feast of Passover. And then Herod finds out that Jesus comes from Galilee. And so Pilate sends Jesus to be interrogated by Herod. He wants to spread the blame around because this is, Jesus is super popular in, in Israel. It's just like various factions uh, were threatened by him. So here we're picking up the account. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man, Jesus, was a Galilean. And when he learned that he was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him off to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. But Herod didn't have, a, in, in a sense, authority there. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had been wanting to see him for a long time. This is the same way he was with John the Baptist. Like he was, he was like, wow, this is a cool guy. I want to talk to him. I'm a celebrity. He's a celebrity. We should talk, you know. And, and it's like uh, David Copperfield. It's like, you know, because he had been wanting to see him for a long time because he had heard about him and was hoping to see him perform some sign. So like, wow, you know, they didn't have Netflix. They didn't have a lot of, like, entertainment. This is a miracle worker. Like, wouldn't it be great to see something awesome? Then it says, listen to this. He questioned him at some length. Herod Antipas questioned Jesus at some length, but Jesus gave him no answer. Let's try to picture that. What would that be like? To question, he questioned it, him at some length. And, and this, is, this is the Middle East. Some length means some length. You know, this wasn't like a script written by Alan Sorkin and it's West Wing and they're all having these clipped, quick, you know, multitasking conversations. This is the Middle East. And they're men. And they're used to taking their time. And it says, he questioned him for a length of time at some length, but Jesus didn't answer. So here's how I'm picturing it. You know, Herod is using, I'm guessing, like a very common tactic of bullies, which is bully harangue, verbal harangue, using up all the airtime. He was spinning his version of reality like a spider's web, but he was spinning out of words. I picture it like a long, rambling speech by Herod, full of praise of Jesus. You know, bullies do that. You know, like uh, abusive husbands will do that with their wives. They'll, they'll control by praise, and they'll con uh, control by threats alternatingly. And I picture Herod starting off trying to control by praise. He's fascinated by John the Baptist and Jesus. And when the long-winded speech with maybe a little question buried somewhere in it was over, Jesus didn't respond with, he didn't mirror his tactic. He didn't respond with his own long-winded speech with an answer buried in the middle of it. He did the opposite. He was silent. Well, imagine then Herod would try again. He'd spin a longer verbal spider web loaded maybe with less praise and more veiled threats at first and a question at the end followed by another silence from Jesus. An insulting silence, really. Then the veiled threats would have given way to brazen threats and the questions were along the lines of don't you know who I am? Don't you know it's dangerous to cross me? All of it met by Jesus with silence. Today we call this verbal uh, bullying uh, gaslighting, right? The, the Me Too movement in particular has kind of highlighted this term of abuse. It's called 
gaslighting. It's, it's spinning a web. The person who's trying to control the other will spin a web of words that constitutes an alternate version of reality using alternate facts that are sometimes called lies. And you know, this, this actually puts a neurological load on the listener. In order to understand what someone is saying, you have to consider it as true first. And that's the first thing your brain does when you hear any statement. You consider it as true, and then you have to do an extra work to recognize it as a lie with the frontal lobe. The brain takes one-fifth of our body's energy. So it's like a big, big muscle, working hard all the time. And the harder you have to work your brain, the more calories you use. It literally, physically wears you out to have to think too hard. This is why uh, Mark Twain, I love his famous saying, a lie travels halfway around the world while the truth is putting on its shoes. Because a, a lie, it, it does that. People, you, you, you believe the lie, it just goes, and then you have, oh, but wait a minute. And then you, you're still putting on your shoes, and then you realize, oh, it's a lie. Don't worry, I'm not going to fall over. Um, so this is what bullies will do with their verbal verbalizations, their um, gaslighting. They'll literally wear people out. So in this context in particular, remember this is face to face with Herod. The silence of Jesus was not submission. It wasn't avoidance or acquiescence. It wasn't compliance as silence sometimes is. It wasn't assent as silence sometimes is. In this case, silence was a powerful form of resistance. He did not dignify Herod's verbal bullying with a response or by reflecting it back or mirroring it. To do so would have been to enter the web that Herod was spinning. And if you're a fly and you see a spider spinning a web, stay out of the web. That's what Jesus was doing. Now, you just notice with Jesus and this bully, in the one case, Jesus is resisting Herod's threat by speaking out against Herod, insulting him, go tell that fox. In another case, Jesus resisted by silence. Each response can be effective. What Jesus did not do was go along to get along. He stood in opposition to the bully throughout his life. And now that brings me to the third thing. Because Jesus was a human being. Jesus taught us to fortify ourselves with love. To drive out the fear of the bully. So we, we should assume that Jesus as a human being spent plenty of time feeling fear about the threat of Herod. I mean, picture Jesus as a little boy. He's, Herod the Great has, has uh, you know, caught wind of a messianic birth and is threatening all the, the male children born in Bethlehem where uh, Jesus was born and his family become asylum seekers to Egypt. And Jesus, little Jesus, you know, and as he's going to preschool, Mom, why, why do we live in Egypt? Because of Herod. So he was a human being. He would have felt the fear of Herod plenty. You know, Joseph Campbell is this guy who analyzes myths and stories. And they say this is class of stories called the hero's journey. Where the hero is often driven into his quest by a bully. So in Lord of the Rings, the uh, ring wraiths 
the Nazgul are, are like the, the, the you know, dark, you know, malevolent forces that fly over the Shire. And, and Bilbo Baggins is driven by fear out of the comfort of the Shire and begins his, his quest. Herod probably was the one who played that role in the life of Jesus. We can assume Jesus felt lots of fear about Herod. The question is not, was Jesus afraid of Herod? The question is, where did the fear of Herod drive Jesus? And it drove him to prayer, and it drove him to God. The, the fear of Herod may be what drove Jesus to experience God's love as intensely as apparently Jesus experienced God's love. It was like the mark of Jesus' relationship with God is he had this intense experience of God's love. One of his followers said, um, perfect love drives out fear. There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. So we can imagine when the fear is great, it takes really pressing into love to drive it out. The perfect in perfect love doesn't mean like flawless love like we think of it. It means like the fullness of love. The fullness of love drives out fear. What was Jesus' most common message? Even more common than repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was don't be afraid. Before he was risen, after he was risen, don't be afraid was the message of Jesus. It wasn't because he didn't experience fear. It's because he pressed into the love of God and he had that experience of that love driving fear out of him. That's why he could say, don't be afraid. It was his connection to God that drove out Jesus' fear. Herod was the occasion of his need. You know, the great lovers, we think them as the great lovers of humankind. Uh, people like King and Gandhi and Sojourner Truth. They were driven, they were all subject to enormous fear, but they were driven by that fear into the arms of like a mystical kind of love, like divine love, perfect love, fullness of love. This is all part of their stories. And we all have, we come here today with our fears and anxieties that have nothing to do with Herod per se. Uh, we may have personal bullies to deal with in, in our families or at our workplace, um, in, maybe in our neighborhoods. But we also live now in a, like a national mood of fear, don't we, that's heightened. Uh, I, my psychologist uh, that I go see says, yeah, it's been really bad in terms of anxiety. It's worse than 9-11. Said this after... Um, 2016. Now, I'm a white man. I was born a citizen of the United States. I'm a property owner. So, like, my re rights have been secured since the U.S. Constitution was written oh so long ago. If I were a black man, my right to vote wasn't secured, wasn't effective until the Civil Rights Act of 1964. That's not that long ago. It wouldn't feel was secured to me if I were a black man, especially now that those are being undermined by various decisions and policies of our Justice Department. If, if I were a gay man, 
You know, my right to marry as a gay man would be like three years old in an institution that goes back just centuries, millennia. I wouldn't feel so secure about my right to, to marry these days. That too is under threat. If I were an immigrant, if I were a Muslim, you better believe I'd be checking the rearview mirror frequently. Like we live in a society now where there's trickle-down fear coming from the top and that's on top of all of our just personal anxieties and social phobias and fear of this and fear of that that we enjoy as human beings. So we have a job to do. And we have that job to do in our community of faith. Wherever we gather with other people, and I would say it's especially true of our community of faith, and that's to give ourselves to love intentionally. And to look out for each other with love. Like come to church ready to look for someone to be nice to to introduce yourself to or, or to connect with. Or if you're an introvert, you know, love people in a way that you only as an introvert can. But be, we're here to practice love because love is the power that drives out fear. This is what the spirit of Jesus is doing among us. And in, in, in our job in a time like this especially is to be extra attentive to the spirit of love. What can I do to cooperate with the spirit of love because this is the, the challenge that we face in this time. Okay, I'm done. Let's do a, a quiet reflection on love. Um, so I'm going to set this time up for you um, in terms of how you might use your imagination for this. It'll take a, maybe two minutes, um, maybe three let me just tell you in advance what I'm going to suggest that you do and then we'll walk through it. The first thing I'm going to ask you to do is to call to mind a physical space. It might be like a favorite outdoor place um, that's really easy for you to imagine as a space that's filled with love. Usually we think of love in terms of people, but I'm just inviting you to think about love as something that fills given spaces. So, like, I, 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 I have this little, little office-y place that I have total control over what's inside of it. And, you know, I just, I love that place. I love my little place. And I love Yosemite Valley. It's just, you know, surrounded and it feels like it's protected when you go to Yosemite. So, pick out something that you can easily imagine as a physical space that is filled with love. Garden of Eden actually was that space and the filling of the love was like the wind, the breath, the spirit was filling the garden. So it was a physical space filled with love. See if you can imagine such a place. And then I'm going to ask you to just picture yourself in that space and just pay attention to your breathing. Like you're breathing in love and you're exhaling to take another breath of love. Picture love is something that fills a space. And then after we've done that for a little bit, I'm just going to invite you to offer a prayer. One prayer would be, just God of love, fill me with love today. You could do that with the in-breath. You know, God of love with the in-breath, fill me with love today with the out-breath. I'll give you another option for that. And maybe you're really worried about a loved one or a friend. And you're just going to be thinking about that person anyway. <laughs> so I would encourage you just go ahead and think about that person but just name them 
and just hold them in that space that's filled with love, you know. You're worried about George, so just name George over and over and just picture George in that space that's filled with love. So either, either one of those, your choice. Ready? Shall we, shall we begin? Just get yourself comfortable in your seat there and take a moment now to call to mind a room or a favorite place outdoors that's really easy for you to imagine as a place that would be filled with love. And just take 30 seconds or so to picture the scene, fill in the details with your imagination, what it would feel like to be in that place, what that place would look like in your mind's eye. Okay, so now as you imagine yourself in that space that's filled with love, don't try to get anything to happen, but just focus on your breathing and imagine that you're, as you breathe in, you're breathing in air that is filled with love and you breathe out to get another breath of air. Just focus on your breathing, the act, physical act of breathing, how it feels to, feels to fill your lung with air and to Relax your body and feel your body soften as you exhale. Give yourself about a minute for that. And now as you continue just to breathe in your normal rhythm, I invite you to tie one or two prayers to that breathing. One would be, God of love, fill me with love today. Or the other might simply be to name or to picture a loved one that you're concerned about. And just picture yourself holding them in that place that's filled with love.
I'll just close this by praying the glory of glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.